Welcome to Life Point with your host, Pastor Tom Doherty. Welcome to Life Point. I'm Pastor Tom Doherty, and today filling in for me is Pastor Gary Moore, and he is the host of Life Point Plus every Friday former associate of mine at Cloverdale Church of God. So I hope you enjoy this great day with Pastor Gary Moore. This is Gary Moore, and I want to welcome you to LifePoint. As you know, I'm filling in for Pastor Tom this week as he continues his well-earned sabbatical. This week, we're spending our time looking at Ephesians 5, picking up where we left off yesterday with verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now here's where it's going to get real interesting, so stay with me. For the husband is the head of the wife. What is Paul saying? In our society and culture, the word head might make us think of a leader, a head coach, or the head of a large company someone who is in charge or in authority. We talk about one spouse wearing the pants of the family. But is that what the head means? If we would read it with that kind of meaning, it would sound something like this. The husband is the head of the wife, as Jeff Bezos is the head of Amazon, the company which he founded. He gets to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and to bark orders at anyone in his company. That might be the right meaning for head in our modern English language, but that is not what Paul meant, and that is not the kind of headship he is thinking of. Our culture reads more into the word head than Scripture intends us to. That is, we tend to read more into it than we read out of it. The word head is a loaded word and the source of many debates. Here's a quick summary for you to consider. Paul is thinking of the head, that part of your body that sits on top your body between the shoulders, literally the head. But he is treating it as a metaphor, and what he says right after is crucial for us to understand. He says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Paul is tying this headship to the relationship between Christ and the church. It might appear to us that this is the proof that head means authority over, but that is not the point that Paul is making here. Paul's point in this passage is not to define for us who is or who is not the leader in a marriage. Rather, he is illustrating unity and relationship. Paul goes on and explains how Christ is the head of the church in the next phrase. Husbands are the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. This last phrase explains and defines what Paul means by headship. Headship is defined as saviorship where Christ is the one who saves, a deliverer or redeemer. The role of a Savior, as Paul defines it and as Jesus shows us, is not one of leadership or authority over, but of redemption and deliverance. Paul, in the earlier parts of Ephesians, describes Christ as the head of the body which he sustains and causes to grow. 
Paul wants us to think of ourselves, the church, as being one with Christ, just as the husband and wife are one. Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, laid down his life in extravagant love for the beloved church, which is his body. He came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus did not come to condemn, but to forgive, to save us. And that is the beautiful gospel. What Paul is doing is redefining the head-body metaphor in light of Jesus. This becomes much clearer in the next section of the passage. If Paul wanted to communicate Jesus as one in authority over the church as a parallel to the marriage relationship, he would have used different language. He might have used language like Jesus as Lord or Master of the body instead of Savior of the body. On this note, the only passage we have in the New Testament that talks about authority in the marriage is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4. There, Paul says something very different from what we might expect. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. In other words, in the act of giving oneself in marriage, each partner comes under the authority of the other. Paul could not be clearer. He redefines what leadership looks like in marriage. His vision for marriage is a revolutionary one where each partner is bonded to the other in mutual love, submission, and authority. Complete equality. Moving to verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Paul makes the summary claim that just as the church submits to Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands. What is interesting is that in these four verses, verses 21 through 24, Paul tells wives to submit, but he does not describe with much particularity what her submission looks like. He just says it and leaves it. Well, why is that? Well, the reason could be is that she knows full well what her submission looks like. It's nothing new. Her submission was a given. She has been doing that her whole married life. However, when we look at how Paul speaks to the husbands, we will find that he does, in fact, call the husbands to submit to their wives. Husbandly submission was not a given in Paul's day, so he has to explain what this looks like, and he does it in a practical and creative way. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So now in verse 25, Paul shifts his attention to the husbands. Essentially, the question behind this part of the text is, All right, men, now it's your turn. What does this mutual submission look like for you as the husband? 
Again, let's keep in mind that Paul is still working under the assumption in verse 21 that submission is something that every believer is obligated to extend to the other out of reverence for Christ as part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Of note here is that Paul uses a word for love that would not have normally been used in such a way. The word he uses is agape love, which is never used in any household codes outside the New Testament. We might ask, well, why did Paul use this word, and what was so significant about his choice of words? Paul could have used eros love, which would communicate sexual or romantic love, or he could have used philia love, which is seen in friendships like brotherly or sisterly love. But he doesn't use either of these. Instead, he uses agape love, which is a very difficult kind of love. So what is agape love? Agape love is Paul's main word for selfless love, unconditional love. It can't be earned, nor is it deserved. It is a love that is self-sacrificial and other-oriented. It turns the focus away from the self and on to the other. It's a love that seeks the other person's good. It is a submissive love. This love is patterned after Jesus, who selflessly laid down his life for us all. When we read in 1 John 4, 7, and 8 that God is love, it is really saying God is agape. It is who God is in his very nature. More specifically, Paul uses the image of crucifixion as the portrait of agape love. This is important to recognize because Paul is challenging the cultural stereotypes of masculinity in his day. Stereotypes that say what defines you as a man is your ability to be in control, to lead with authority, and to be the embodiment of strength and power. The inability to do this was to be seen as shamefully less than male in the eyes of the community. So as Paul draws our attention to Jesus, we see him crucified and hanging naked on the cross. Crucifixion, one of the most shameful ways to die in Paul's day. It took away a man's control of his situation, emasculating him. On the cross, Jesus had no rights. He had no control over his situation. He died a criminal's death. Jesus showed his agape love by ultimately laying down all his rights and service to us as the church, and he calls husbands to embody the same kind of selfless love. As I reflect on this, I wonder if Paul is also calling us men to lay down our intense desire to be in charge, to be an authority, to have the last word. How does the image of Jesus on the cross challenge our presuppositions and ideas of what it means to be a godly husband? What needs to change in order to reflect the same selfless love that Jesus showed to us on the cross? In the next five verses, Paul shows the husband exactly what this looks like in the marriage relationship. Well, our time is gone for today. 
Join me tomorrow as we continue to look at Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. God bless. LifePoint is a ministry of the Cloverdale Church of God. If you would like a copy of today's broadcast or would like more information about the church, please call us at 208-362-1700 or write to Cloverdale Church of God, 3755 South Cloverdale Road, Boise, Idaho, 83709. You may also visit us at our website, www.cloverdalechurch.org. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day.